know, it struck me this morning that what we're doing here right now is the most significant thing happening on planet Earth. I mean, think about that for a minute. All the huge decisions and big-headed government officials and all the power players and all the seemingly incredibly important things that are happening across the world. And you and I, by worshiping God, have chosen to do the most important. And we are involved in the most significant. So I'm really glad you all are here for that reason and for him. Let's pray. Father, we bless your name this morning. Jesus, we worship you as King of kings and Lord of lords. And we recognize there really is nothing better than you. There is no one greater than you. And there is nothing else that we could choose to do that is more significant than bowing our heads and our knees, our hearts, Lord Jesus, before you this morning and declaring you as Lord and Savior, as our great loving Father, as King over all. Thank you, Lord, that though everything around us changes, you are always the same. Thank you for being so stable and being our stability. And I pray your blessing this morning. I just ask you, Holy Spirit, to work among us. We pray that we will recognize your presence and receive, Lord, the work that you still have to do in our hearts as you sanctify us for the final day, the day of Christ Jesus. Thank you, Lord, for gathering us today. In Jesus' name, and all God's people said... Amen. I don't even know when we learned to say that when someone said all God's people said and we all just say amen. I don't know when that happened. Sometime when I was a kid, I think a pastor said it and I'm like, all God's people said. And I was like, hooray. <laughs> no, it's amen. It's amen. Good. Why don't you open up your Bibles to Titus chapter 2. Titus chapter 2. Hey, Real quick, while you're turning there, let's see, what does this say? Okay, that's for second service, but I will tell you first service, we are in need of volunteers to begin to work with children, and that will become abundantly clear before we're done this morning. Um, we're going to especially need that to really start stepping that back up, serving and loving our kids. Uh, Camerly has been remarkably um, faithful in serving these several months, and uh, she and a small group of people have kind of been taking all the kids together and, and caring for them during second service, but we're going to be shifting some things, and we're going to need some help there, so uh, pray about that, and if the Lord is asking you to be involved with children's ministry, or if you just feel guilty, whatever it takes, <laughs> would you please talk to her and, and consider serving in our children's ministry. Okay, so this morning... What we're going to do is, uh, some of you have been asking for a while for some prophecy update. I'm like, what do you need a prophecy update for? We're living it. But here we go. We're going to start this morning. Uh, this is part one of a prophecy update that we will at least run into next week and maybe the week after that. Maybe we'll just keep going until Jesus comes. I don't know. 
I know that when I was studying for today, he, he pulled me back to what we're going to talk about, not what I intended to talk about. We're going to do that next week. And then something else came up in, in my study that we're going to deal with probably the week after that. So the next two or three weeks, we'll be doing some prophecy updates. If you've never been involved with that or understand what a prophecy update is, I'll explain that as we go as well. But God has some things to say to us in this season, and we need to be hearing. You're going to... We're going to continue Leviticus on Wednesday nights, so we'll continue in our study through Leviticus on Wednesdays. That will not stop, but we need to do this for now. Titus chapter 2, verse 11, says, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men, instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus, who gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good deeds. These things speak and exhort and reprove with all authority. Let no one disregard you, Paul says to Titus. Every year... I give Cheryl a Christmas ornament. It's kind of become a tradition. I mean, we're, we're on 20 or 25 years. I don't remember how far back. I know it was around 1999, maybe 2000 that I started doing this. And it's a specific kind. I go to Linux. This is not a commercial. But I go to Linux and I get her a porcelain Christmas ornament. And they do snowmen and Santas and reindeer. They do all kinds of just really cute little, uh, but, but very nice ornaments. These are meant to last. Picking one for this year was tough. I didn't feel like picking some smiley, cutesy little thing because that certainly wasn't representative of what's been going on and all the things that we've had to face. I mean, what do you, what do you pick? They even had Santa wearing a mask. I'm like, I'm not putting that on my tree. I don't want that reminder. Should we be here another year, two or five? I don't want to see that. So what do you choose? And then I saw it. It was a snowman. And it was standing by a wooden North Pole sign. But what caught my attention was it was holding out a lantern. And I said, that's it. That's it. Perfect. Your word is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. Psalm 119, 105. First Peter chapter 1, verse 18. We have the prophetic word more sure to which you would do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star arises in your heart. Those verses came to mind. I saw that snowman. See, this is what it's like living with a pastor. Everything goes right back to a verse. You got to have a verse for a Christmas ornament. But I saw that and I thought, we need, that's it. A light to get us through the darkness. And that's what God's word truly is for us. Can't believe I'm going to say this, but I'm going to say it. Hindsight is 2020. But foresight belongs to God. We can look back, we can whine, we can consider all that's <laughs> this water under the bridge. See, there's a second one for you this morning already. But God has given us a lantern to shine in a dark place. God has given us light for our path. 
He has told us what to expect. He's told us what to do in these last days. And for 17 years now in this fellowship, and many of you have heard this long before that, we have been living in the last days. But it seems a whole lot more last days-ish now than even a year ago. I mean, things have, have ramped up and amped up. And it's a wonderful encouragement, the idea that, that this, this is a lamp, this is a light, this, is, this prophetic word is a lamp shining in a dark place. Do well to pay attention to it until the day dawns. Keep in the word, stay in the word. The wonderful encouragement of Bible prophecy is it's the Lord sharing his foresight and his foreknowledge with us. Everything that he's already seen from his perspective outside of time, before it takes place, he's seen it happen, the end from the beginning, and he tells it to us. And no other book does that. No other religious uh, writing even comes close. It's nearly a third of the entire Bible is prophecy. You cannot study this word without studying prophecy. If you say you're a Bible student, but you're not into prophecy, you are not a Bible student because you're skipping a third, every third verse or so. The Koran, how about that? Doesn't that have prophecy in it? Nope. According to Muslim scholars, a third of their holy book is untranslatable. Let me translate untranslatable for you. Gibberish, meaningless, can't be understood. It's the exact opposite in the Holy Scriptures of the Word of God. You can't, again, study the Bible and ignore its comprehensive prophecy or its central personality about whom all prophecy has been written in the first place, for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy, Revelation 19, verse 10. Remember, there are 66 books in the Bible, one revelation, the revelation of Jesus Christ, because the whole book is about Jesus. Jesus fulfilled more than 300 concise prophecies of the coming Messiah in his first coming. We've tracked those. We can see those. And by the way, I'm talking specific words spoken, that he would be pierced through for our transgressions. That he would be born in Bethlehem. I mean, things that are so literally accurate and over 300 of those. Now, if you add into that all of the pictures and types of the coming Messiah, that is the portrayal, for example, of the father-son sacrifice that we see in Abraham and Isaac in Genesis 22. That's a type of what God and Jesus would experience, would do when Jesus went to the cross. And if you add in all of those the amount of prophetic indications of Jesus' first coming soars to well over 500 in the Hebrew Scriptures. From the manger to the ministry to the murder of Jesus Christ, every single messianic prophecy was precisely fulfilled in Jesus. Why do you believe Jesus is the Son of God? How can you not when you read ahead of time exactly what he did? God says in Isaiah 46, verse 9, Remember the former things long past, for I am God, and there is no other. I am God. There is no one like me, declaring the end from the beginning 
And from ancient times, things that have not been done, saying, my purpose will be established and I will accomplish all my good pleasure. God's going to get it done. And so all I have to do is get in line to see it get done. And he's been getting it done this year. Not just 2021. He's been getting it done this age. And we are, as it were, in front row seats to watch it happen. So don't be discouraged. There are Christians throughout 2,000 years of the church who would long to have the perspective that you and I get to have right now, who would long to be here to see what's taking place and to be ready to receive the call of Jesus. So Bible prophecy, again, if this is new to you, it is intentionally stated and it is literally fulfilled. It's not the vague stuff of a horoscope or a fortune cookie. Tomorrow you will meet a stranger. Wow, that's amazing how, how precise they were. At every turn in the word of God, the Lord speaks to comfort and prepare, and exhort, and encourage, and strengthen, and steal his people for what's to come, and for what they will go through, for what we'll experience. You know what's to come? The next big thing is the rapture of the church. Now, we've said this for years, but it just becomes more and more intense. As Paul said, salvation now is nearer to us than when we first began. The rapture of the church is the next thing. Nothing has to happen. According to Bible prophecy, nothing else is on the calendar before that happens. Could be any time. When the Lord himself, 1 Thessalonians 4, 16, will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. And then we who are alive and remain will be caught up. Caught up. Harpazo. In the Greek, raptus in the Latin. That's where the colloquial rapture comes from. Caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. If you have a brother or a sister in Christ who's bummed out or discouraged, especially over this last week, tell them, rapture's coming. We're gonna be caught up. And those who have gone on before us, they're going to be there to meet us. I mean, it's going to be all instantaneous, but they get to go first. And it's a beautiful, marvelous, comforting thing. It is not just crazy Christian escapism, as continues to be portrayed in the media. Luke 21, 36, Jesus said, keep on the alert at all times, praying that you may have strength to escape all these things that are about to take place and to stand before the Son of Man. Pray for the escape. But you want to stay here? 1 Thessalonians 5, 9 tells us that God has not destined us for wrath, but for obtaining salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ who died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we will live together with him. There's your comfort. There's your encouragement. Now, my goal this week is not to biblically prove the rapture. That's next week. I want to, Lord willing, I want to talk about where we are right now. What's going on this week? Thursday morning, 
I went, I, I was here in the office, I was working out some things, thinking this through, praying about it, and, and wanted to talk about the rapture, wanted to really get into that, and that's where the Lord redirected and said, now we got to talk about some things before you get there, because you're still before you get there, at least as of Thursday. So I wrote that down, and I was looking up some passages and thinking about and praying about that, and then my little alarm went off on my watch, and I had to run down to Oak Harbor to get a haircut. So I head down to get my hair cut by Shelly, who's been cutting my hair for a long time. She's been faithfully standing with the full retreat and doing the best that she can, <laughs> for which I am very thankful. And so I, I, I sat down in the chair. She comes around the corner. First thing out of her mouth, she goes, Rick, what's going on? And it wasn't like, what's going on? How have you been? Haven't seen? No, it was, what is going on? Now, this is Thursday morning following Wednesday, and you all know what happened on Wednesday. Rick, what's going on? And it was the second time I'd heard that question that morning. I'd already had an email before I even got into the office. What's going on? What's going on? I'm like, <laughs> who am I? Here's what's going on. We are in the run-up to the rapture. The run-up to the rapture. These are the days that we're in. Now, I could have said that 10 years ago. I said, could have said it 15 years ago, and I probably did. But my friends, when I say the run-up to the rapture, we are sprinting for the goal. The finish line is just ahead of us. And again, salvation is nearer now than it has ever been before. We all thought it was going to happen in 95 when Tim LaHaye released the Left Behind series. <laughs> we didn't figure there was any way he was going to get to book two or three. Or four, until we realized all he was doing is a day at a time per book. I want you to think about something. Left Behind, the first book, written in 1995, a quarter century ago. Gen Xers were teenagers and young adults. Millennials were school kids, and Gen Zers weren't even born yet. Grunge was the music of choice, especially up here in the Northwest. Both houses of Congress were held by Republicans, so pretty dramatic changes since then. John Paul II was Pope. The Rams had moved to St. Louis. Oh, that they had stayed there. And Michael Flatley's River Dance opened in Dublin. So that was what was happening back then. And O.J. Simpson was sent to trial for murder. And we saw a country divide racially that, I don't know about you, but, but surprised me at the time that there was that deep a divide uh, that I was unaware of. The Twin Towers stood tall and would for another five years. In 1995, the Dow Jones closed at a record high, get this, of 5,117. Those of you who watch such things know that 2020 began with a record high of 31,000. Crazy. In fact, this year began with the American economy more blazing hot and prosperous than it has ever been. I mean, it was just smoking before COVID and all that's taken place. And it struck me in thinking about these things that in January of 1995, in January of 2020, there were many similarities. Life was going on. Obladi, oblada. 
It was just things were happening and we were living and we were coming to church and thinking, you know, I, I, I was thinking a year ago, we need to have some kind of a vision for 2020 and all the 2020 vision stuff, you know, that everybody talked about. No one knew what was coming, how similar it was, and we had no idea what was going to happen this year. No way to know. Listen, our view of Bible prophecy can be easily misguided and misinformed if we allow the times to decipher the scriptures rather than trusting the word of God to define the times. And this is an important distinction. Turning your Bibles over to Matthew chapter 16. Matthew 16. Let me explain this a little more. Matthew 16, verse 1, the Pharisees and the Sadducees came up to Jesus as they typically did, challenging him at every turn, questioning everything he had to say, trying not to find out what he was teaching, but trying to disprove or undermine or undercut everything that he was about. They came up and testing Jesus. Verse 1, they asked him to show them a sign from heaven. This is right after he fed 5,000 people miraculously. Show us a sign. How was your fish sandwich, dude? I mean, come on. But he replied to them, when it's evening, you say, it will be fair weather for the sky is red. And in the morning... There will be a storm today, for the sky is red and threatening. Do you know how to discern the appearance of the sky, but cannot discern the signs of the times? An evil and adulterous generation seeks after a sign, and a sign will not be given it except the sign of Jonah, and he left them, and he went away. The sign of Jonah was Bible. The sign of Jonah was one of those uh, pictures in type of what would happen, lived out in real time historically with the man Jonah swallowed by the fish three days and three nights before he was spat out on the ground. The true story that had happened, don't you understand, that will define your times for you. That story will inform you of what is happening in these days, Jesus said, and that story, that story was a picture of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. So that's what I mean, scripture first, that then defines the times second. Their problem was that they weren't looking for any kind of defining of the times. They didn't even understand the scriptures. If they understood the scriptures, they would have understood the times. If they had been focused on the prophetic word, they would have known Messiah was right before them. But they weren't looking at the word. They were looking at their own lives and their selves and their power. This is the right interpretation. The times don't interpret Scripture. Scripture interprets the times. So we're in the Word of God that the Word of God might inform us as to what is happening to us. And when we see the parallels, then we read the signs. Then we understand the language written on the signs of our times. Did you hear it, by the way? Jesus was describing heavy weather. That there would be times when the weather was fine, but there would be times where you would see it. It says, in the morning there will be a storm today for the sky is red and threatening. As the old saying goes, red sky at night, sailors delight. Red sky at morning, sailors take warning. 
I mentioned the Left Behind series. Back in 1995, Left Behind was written in a life-as-usual America. I mean, there were bumps in the road, as there's always been, but it was a pretty, you know, not a whole lot significantly different was happening. And, and Jerry Jenkins and Tim LaHaye said, this world's got to wake up, and they were right to do so. And by the way, I, I love the Left Behind series. But there's one thing wrong with that first book and with the occurrence of the rapture in that first book. And that is, if you read it, everything's going all along pretty much as normal, and then pop, Christians are gone. And many of us, for many, many years, have assumed that's, just, that's exactly what would happen. Everything will be fine and dandy, life as usual, obladi, oblada, and then whoop, we're gone. And that is not what the Bible teaches. Oh, yes, the Bible does te teach pop, we're out of here. Absolutely, that in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed instantaneously. 1 Corinthians 15, 52. But the run-up to the rapture is not smooth sailing. The Bible has been absolutely clear. Right now, this morning, we can say it is red sky at morning, sailors take warning. The seas are rough and likely to get more rough. I don't know how soon we're going. See, that's, that's in the Father's hands. I don't know the day or the hour. I have some assumptions. Not going to give you a date. But that's not my concern. My concern is that the run-up to the rapture is not smooth sailing. The Bible never said it would be. In fact, the Bible says exactly the opposite. Things are going to go from bad to worse. Our days right now are not like they were a year ago or 26 years ago. And I absolutely believe we are in the run-up to the rapture. I'm going to give you several uh, signs of the times this morning to consider, to think about the, in, in this run-up. These are by no means exhaustive, and there are more that you might think of as we're going through. That's great. Jot them down. The Lord is speaking to you. There may be others that you've heard or thought about that I'm not going to cover this morning. That's cool. Many different things that we could talk about. The, the list is, is, is far beyond the time we have. Like, for example, how many times have I shared this verse with you over the last couple of years at least, Matthew 24, 12? Because lawlessness is increased, most people's love will grow cold. Familiar with that one? Do we see that in the times? I want to look at the love problem from another angle. So turning your Bibles over to 2 Timothy. 2 Timothy chapter 3. I'm glad to see you turning. You're going to need to turn. We're going to jump around a little bit this morning. So from Matthew 16 now to 2 Timothy chapter 3. And we begin with the first sign of the times that we see so clearly in our day today. The Bible defining, prophecy defining what we see going on. And sign number one, if you're jotting these things down, is self-love. Self-love. First Timothy, or Second Timothy, sorry. Second Timothy, chapter three, verse one. But realize this, that in the last days, difficult times will come. That's what you're going to experience. The seas will be rough, red sky at morning. For verse two, men will be lovers of self, lovers of money. Stop right there. Sign of the time, number one, self-love, lovers of self. You know what we just studied on Wednesday night, Leviticus 19, verse 18? 
You shall not take vengeance nor bear any grudge against the sons of your people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Why? I am the Lord. This is what you do. This is who I am, therefore this is what you do. Hebrews 13, 1. Let love of the brethren continue. If we are about anything, brothers and sisters, in these last days and during these times, it must be about the love of the brethren. Above love of self. I've got to love you more than I love myself. By the way, I have a very important announcement after the teaching, so stay tuned. Second sign of the times right here with self-love is fiscal love. Fiscal love, love of money, he says. Love of self, men will be lovers of self. Men will be lovers of money. Now, check this out. The global economic crisis right now is greater than it's been at any point in history. Every nation right now, not just a few, not just a, uh, the, the majority, every nation is in debt to the hilt. Primarily because of the COVID crisis, but some even before that. And so I am, I am so at peace. I'm so thankful for this that, that Davos is about to take place because, you know, we need someone to save us. You know what's proposed in this time of incredible global fiscal crisis? It's called the Great Reset. Have you heard about this? The Great Reset. January 25th through 29th of this, this January, so this month, a couple of weeks away now, the WEF, which you may not have heard of, the World Economic Forum, most people just have heard Davos. Davos, Switzerland is where they've met every year. The, the big wigs, the global elites gather together to save the world with all of their ideas every year at Davos. This year, it's digital Davos because they're all afraid to meet together. Davos is, has been described as burning man for the global elite. I think that's a good description right there. But I ran across this. The World Economic Forum has revealed its Davos 2021 agenda, the public unveiling of its Great Reset Initiative. In a preview to the digital Davos dialogues, the WEF asserts the time to rebuild trust and to make crucial choices is fast approaching as the need to reset priorities and the urgency to reform systems grow stronger around the world. The need for, quote, global leaders to come together to design a common recovery path and shape the great reset in the post-coronavirus world has never been stronger. And then it concludes, or it continues to set out the exact plan. An entire week of global programming will be dedicated to helping leaders choose innovative and bold solutions to stem the pandemic and drive a robust recovery over the next year. The Davos agenda will also mark the launch of the World Economic Forum's Great Reset Initiative and begin the preparation of the special annual meeting in the spring. Each day will focus on one of the five domains of the Great Reset Initiative. And I'm not going to go into all those because, honestly, it's, it's kind of like the third, the Koran, most of it's gibberish. But last month... In a WEF panel discussion, former Secretary of State John Kerry laid out one possible element. He said, President-elect Joe Biden is ready to rejoin the Paris Climate Agreement, which threatens to eliminate more than a, a million American jobs. That, that agreement, that's, that's what it would do. 
and be a driver of the Great Reset, whereby unelected global bureaucrats are looking to alter the world's economy by abolishing money, private property, and democracy for the sake of the new world order. The notion of a reset is more important than ever before, Kerry said. I personally believe we're at the dawn of an extremely exciting time. Kerry dismissed the US, the U.S. rejoining the Paris Climate Agreement as being not nearly enough. I know Joe Biden believes this. It's not just enough just to rejoin the Paris Agreement for the United States. It's not just enough for us to do the minimum of what the re agreement requires. Hey, the minimum is devastating. He says the Biden administration will focus on every sector of the American economy. There will be a 2035 goal to achieve net neutrality with respect to power and production. We're ready to come back in and help to lead and raise the ambition in Glasgow to accelerate this incredible capacity for a transformation in the private sector. According to their own publicity, the Davos agenda will feature heads of state and of governments from the G20 and international organizations giving special addresses on the state of the world, industry leaders and public figures discussing in leadership panels how to advance and accelerate public-private collaboration, translation government control, on critical issues such as coronavirus vaccination schemes and climate change and other uh, among other things, the forum's core communities, including its International Business Council, sharing the insight and recommendations from global, regional, and industry initiatives in impact sessions. So this is all happening this month, beginning this month, and you know what it comes down to? Lovers of money. How can we, first of all, save the world, and secondly, Increase our own bank accounts. Jesus said in Matthew 6, 19, do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal. Thieves have broken in. Demonic forces are at work that Davos will not even recognize or consider. In fact, much of it will be driven by those forces. Jesus said, store up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, where thieves do not break in or steal, for where your treasure is, what? There your heart will be also. Do you believe that? Then invest in it. Invest in heaven. Let your heart be toward the kingdom. Focus on what is coming as told by Jesus, not on how you can secure yourself for the next age, according to the globalists. See, the next age is not going to be a globalist age. It's going to be a dictatorship under the one dictator, Jesus Christ. And it'll be perfect. Now, listen, Paul's breakdown of those who buy into self-love and fiscal love is happy love. But it sounds like this, boastful, arrogant, Revilers, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, unloving, irreconcilable, malicious gossips, without self-control, brutal, haters of good, treacherous, reckless, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, or number three, happy love. So these are signs of the times, my friends, self-love, everybody self-protective, self-involved, self-focused, fiscal love, everybody about their own money, and Happy love. 
happy love. The phrase is lovers of pleasure. In the Greek, it's philedonoi. Phile from philos, from brotherly love, friendship. And donoi from hedon, or where we get the word hedonism. So literally translated, this idea of lovers of pleasure is friends of hedonism. In the last days, difficult times will come. People will be friends of themselves. People will be friends of money. And people will be friends of happiness. See, what hedonism is, literally defined, is personal happiness as the chief goal of life. It's even in our Constitution. No offense, but life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. My friends, the pursuit of happiness is not a biblical pursuit. Friends of happiness, friends of hedonism, rather than friends of God. There's such a difference. Abraham was called a friend of God, James 2.23. Moses spoke with God as a man speaks to his friend, Exodus 33.11. And James 4 verse 4 tells us, you adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. And that's really the choice here. You can be into uh, self-friendship, physical friendship, or friendship with happiness, your own personal, or we can be friends of God in this run-up to the rapture. Friends of God, what, what does friendship with Jesus in this age guarantee? I'll give you two things. Friendship with Jesus right now does not guarantee self-love, although you'll never be more confidently loved than by him. Friendship with Jesus does not guarantee fiscal love, though there's perfect peace in his provision for you in your life. And friendship with Jesus does not promise happy love, but there is something far greater that is promised, and that is Deep, strengthening joy. I wish our Constitution was rewritten to say, life, liberty, and the pursuit of joy in Christ. Because that's different than happiness. Happiness comes and goes. Joy does not fail. In fact, the Bible says, Isaiah 12, verse 2, Behold, God is my salvation. I will trust and not be afraid. For the Lord God is my strength and my song. And he has become my salvation. Therefore, you will joyously draw water from the springs of salvation. Joy strengthens. Happiness flits and floats. Joy is there regardless of circumstance. Because it comes from Jesus and from a relationship with him. Nehemiah chapter 8 verse 10. Do not be grieved for the joy of the Lord is your strength. And friendship with Jesus will guarantee you deep, strengthening joy that will not fail. Friendship with Jesus also will guarantee you certain suffering. Joy and suffering. Suffering is, is absolutely clear. Read through 1 Peter sometime when you have a chance. Peter uses the word suffer or suffering more than any of the other epistles in the New Testament. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 20, he says, For you have been called for this purpose. You ready? Here's your purpose. Write it down. Since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example to follow in his steps. So joyful ones, 
If you're following Jesus, you're going to suffer. 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 1. Therefore, since Christ has suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves also with the same purpose. What purpose? To suffer in the flesh. Get ready. Buckle up. Suffering's going to come. Because he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. See, sin is all about the flesh. But when I suffer in the flesh, the flesh becomes a whole lot less important. And the spirit starts to take center stage in my life. It says, live the rest of the time in the flesh no longer for the lusts of men, but for the will of God. So there's joy in that and suffering. 1 Peter 5.10, he says, however, after you have suffered for a little while, the God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. So right now in the world, in this run-up to the rapture, we see self-love. We see fiscal love as people are, are dialing into their, their, their pocketbooks and trying to make more, and the, and the rich are getting richer, and you've heard all of that. And this love of happiness, this friendship with happiness and my own well-being today or tomorrow or next week, that's all, these are all signs of the times. But turn over to chapter 4 of 2 Timothy. 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 3. Another sign of the time for you, for the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance to their own desires. Do you know that you can do that more today than ever before? All you need is a podcast. All you need is a little platform on your phone to listen to podcasts, and there is more that you can listen to right now than ever before. Jump on YouTube. There are more teachers than ever before, and they're teaching all kinds of things. Some are false prophets teaching in the name of Christ. Some are just teaching this, that, or the other, and it's so easy just to just get caught up in all of these. Well, it's, it's what I call sign of the times number four, audio amusement. You need like three or four H's in there, audio amusement. Audio amusement. The time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance to their own desires and will turn away their ears from the truth and will turn aside to myths, but you be sober. That is, keep your head in all things. Endure or literally suffer hardship. Do the work of an evangelist. Fulfill your ministry. Audio amusement. The reason I say it that way is that phrase, ears tickled. Wanting to have their ears tickled. In the Greek, it's literally itchy hearing scratched to satisfaction. Itchy hearing scratched to satisfaction. I don't just make this stuff up. I mean, this is here, gang. You know the feeling. You know what I'm talking about. You know, you get that just the other night. I'm, I'm there with Cheryl. I'm like, left shoulder blade, left shoulder blade, left shoulder blade. You know, and she has to come over and start scratching there. It's like, ah. I always start going... Or the dog thing, you know. <laughs> Starts to scratch. You know, you know what happens? You get that satisfaction, ah, and the itch moves. Right shoulder blade, right shoulder blade, ah. And it just keeps moving. And you just can't ever really get it satisfied. Eventually you give up because you're going to get your skin scratched off. This is what's going on. 
Sign of the times, teaching that tickles the ears, that satisfies the itch, that pleases the self, comes right back into that self-love rather than convicting by the spirit of truth. We've told you many times. I think Les even said it last week. And by the way, Les and Jake, thank you so much. Your teaching over the last couple of Sundays was awesome. It was spot on. But this whole idea that I, 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 I'm not always going to be pleased with what I hear in the scriptures. Sometimes I'm going to be convicted. Sometimes I'm going to hear things and go, oh, I don't want to hear that. That, does, that makes me uncomfortable. I didn't scratch an itch. It bumps up against my heart. Amos prophesied so long ago, chapter 8, verse 11, days are coming, declares the Lord God, when I will send a famine on the land, not a famine for bread or a thirst for water, but for rather for hearing the words of the Lord. Audio amusement. I just want to listen to what makes me feel good, what aligns with what I think is right, rather than what the scriptures teach. And my friends, here is where it gets Absolutely deadly. Turn back to 1 Timothy chapter 4. 1 Timothy chapter 4, because when we get all caught up in this audio amusement, what ends up happening, Paul calls the deceitful doctrines of demons. Sign of the times, number five, deceitful doctrines of demons. 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 1, but the Spirit explicitly says that in latter times, some will fall away from the faith paying attention to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons by means of the hypocrisy of liars seared in their own conscience as with a branding iron. What does that mean? It means all conscience sensitivity gone. See, God has given every human being a conscience. Believer and non-believer, we all have a conscience that gives us a sense of right and wrong. I love what C.S. Lewis said about it. He said he didn't believe in God for a time, but then he asked himself, but where did this idea of right and wrong come from? How would we know what was right and what was wrong if there wasn't a higher being to define that for us, to, to tell us in our own brains? He said a man does not have any idea of a, of a crooked line unless he knows what a straight line is. And so we have this conscience, but the more we lie and the more we're deceived and the more we get our ears tickled by things that are not true, the more the conscience gets seared until it no longer works. Until it doesn't matter if it's the right thing to do, it's the expedient thing to do, or can I say it, it's the political thing to do. It doesn't matter if it's right or wrong. Just do what you sense will get you to where you want to go. And so there's a sense of, an un, or inability to detect what is true and sound and good. Their conscience is seared. Demonic deceit is the name of the game in this season. The lies are profuse in politics, in media, government. Who can you trust? Where do you turn to get what you know is the truth? And I would suggest right here, but what's interesting is Paul gives two strange examples. I've always wondered how this would work out, what this would look like. I think we know now. Two very strange examples of this whole idea of the doctrines of demons. Verse 3, men who forbid marriage. That's the first one. Well, that's not happening, right? Hang on a second. Think about this. What is the biblical definition of marriage? 
It's one man plus one woman equals one flesh. That's, that's God's definition, has been since the Bible was written, has been since we were created, has been since the earth began. One man plus one woman equals one flesh. That's the Bible definition. And if you want to look it up, Genesis 1.24, Matthew 19, verses 4 through 6, where Jesus affirms Genesis 1.24, that's the biblical definition. Okay, are we clear on that? What's the U.S. Supreme Court definition? See, in June 26, 2015, our Supreme Court ruled the biblical definition of marriage to be unconstitutional. My friends, those who forbid marriage. Marriage has now been forbidden as biblically defined. You cannot just have a man and a woman as one flesh. It's got to be much broader than that. I know that's not new, but I realize that forbids the biblical definition of marriage. Those who forbid marriage. Doctrines of demons. And who advocate abstaining from foods which God has created to be gratefully shared in by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good and nothing is to be rejected if it's received with gratitude for it's sanctified by means of the word of God and prayer. And the first thing that comes to mind is God saying to Peter, rise Peter, kill and eat. Now, now listen to me. If you're not a fan of five guys, that's okay. You don't like McDonald's, you got health reasons for fruits, vegetables, and, and fish diet. That's, that's great, that's fine. But doctrines of demons includes those who forbid marriage, which has happened in our culture now, and those who abstain from certain foods or say you must abstain from certain foods. And where that plays into is the elevation of animal rights alongside or even above human rights. Groups like PETA. That, that fits the biblical definition of demonic doctrines. Animals that we are to tend and, and oversee and rule over, as the scriptures say, now are elevated alongside or above, and that is ungodly. That's out of order. Doctrines of demons. Sign uh, of the times number six. Now let's get to this. You probably were wondering, well, wait a minute. What about the birth pains? Sign of the times number six. Birth pangs. Go to Matthew 24. Matthew 24. Turn over there. This may seem like we're jumping kind of back and forth to some different and, and, and various signs of the times. The point is, think about what, what we're talking about here is what's the run-up to the rapture to look like? What are the things to be at play or in play right before Jesus says, come up here. Matthew 24. Matthew 24 is very interesting. I want to give you, um, this is a side note. This one's for free. It's not in my notes, but you probably need to know this. So I won't make you pay for this this morning. This is an outline for Matthew 24. Jot this down. Note this. Because this is where people get confused in, especially the rapture, which we'll talk about next week, and things that Jesus brings up. Just listen. Matthew 24. Here's the outline. Verse 1 through verse 31 is now until Jesus comes. That is the glorious appearing, Jesus coming back and actually setting foot on planet earth as the Bible says he will. Verse 31 verses. Actually, you could say it's all the way from A.D. 70 up to the glorious appearing and return of Jesus 
to this earth. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, he prayed. And so it begins right around verse four. Jesus starts to give warning. In fact, they came out from, verse one, the temple. He was going away when his disciples came up and pointed out the temple buildings to him, which were breathtaking. One of the wonders of the, seven wonders of the world at the time. And he said to them, do you not see all these things? Truly I say to you, not one stone here will be left upon another which will not be torn down. Many of you have stood there and looked at those torn down stones. Pretty remarkable. Piled up at the base of the temple mount. All the way, uncovered, you know, somewhat recently, but still there. Thrown off the top of the temple as the temple was destroyed. Pretty amazing to see that in person. And then he was sitting on the temple, on the Mount of Olives, verse 3, and the disciples came to him privately saying, tell us, when will these things happen? Question number one. What will be the sign of your coming? Question number two. And of the end of the age? Question number three. Jesus answers all three questions. But he begins by doing it chronologically, beginning with what was about to take place, AD 70, and the destruction of the temple, and all the way up then, past that time, all the way up to present time, and then to his glorious appearing. And those are the first 31 verses. If you want to break it down further, you can say verse 4 through 14 is 80, 70, and into the first half of the tribulation. Verse 15 starts or begins the great tribulation, and that then runs all the way down, describing it all the way down until verse 29, which then he describes in the next three verses his glorious appearing. And at that point, note this, at that point, the chronological teaching of Jesus ends. And from verse 32 to the end of the chapter, he starts talking about readiness. And that's where people get confused. He talks about readiness. First 31 verses, here's what's going to happen. I'm answering your question for you. This is what it's going to look like. And you can lay it out chronologically. But in verse 32, he starts to talk about the fig tree. He will talk about the rapture of the church. We'll look at these things next week. He begins to talk about readiness because you don't know the day or the hour. And that's the last part of the chapter. Okay, so that was, that was a freebie. That doesn't count for the time length of this teaching. Look at verse 4. Jesus answered, and he said to them, See to it that no one misleads you. That's a good word right there. For many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and will mislead many. You will be hearing of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not frightened, for those things must take place, but that is not yet the end. Nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. And by the way, that's never happened more than since World War II. In fact, in the last hundred years, we've seen more of that than any time in history, nation against nation. He goes on and says, in various places there will be famines and earthquakes, but all these things are merely the beginning of birth pangs. Now stop right there. These are all things that have been happening for the last 2,000 years. But he describes them as birth pangs. And what Jesus describes in verses 4 through 8 is the run-up to the rapture. Birth pangs. Luke, by the way, also includes in the list that Jesus used the word for plagues. We could say pandemics. Birth pangs of necessity, and we've talked about this before, always increase with intensity and frequency. Those are the keys. If you've 
given birth, ladies, if you have had a child, you know the intensity of the pain increases. I saw that with, with my wife. And there was a difference between, you know, the, the Braxton Hicks kind of little birth pains, like, whoo, and she'd kind of giggle, wow, that, whoo. And real labor, ah! I'm like, okay, something changed. I was, I was fearful for my life a couple of times. The intensity, completely different when a woman goes into labor. The frequency, you know, they get closer and closer and closer and closer together, and then the birth. I remember when it was almost fun to talk about some of these things. I mean, like, look, look at the increase of earthquakes. And, and, you know, with all understanding that lives have been lost in earthquakes and devastation has happened, but, man, when you're sitting in 20th century America... I know we're 21st, but this is back in 20th century America, sitting there, and, and things are, you know, relatively good, and you've survived several California earthquakes, as I have. Whoa, earthquakes are really on the increase. You'd put that down. Look at all the increase of earthquakes. Let's chart that. Ooh, let's talk about that in a sermon. It was kind of fun. Talk about what's going on around the world. Ooh, birth pangs. We see these birth pangs happening. And yet... How many of you moms would go back to late labor birth pangs just for the fun of it? I mean, there are many women who have had more than one child because they forget. <laughs> but how many would think about and process that, you know, two-hour, three-hour, 14-hour process, however long it went, and go, I really want to do that again. See, in America, we have not felt the birth pangs like much of the rest of the world has. We really haven't experienced the intensity and the frequency of these things. Birth pangs, Jesus called them, are supposed to be sharp and painful, and there's nothing easy about them. And so he says, listen, wars and rumors of wars. Be on the alert. Be aware of this. Those of you who have actually fought in battle understand what so many of us who have just watched it on TV have never understood, birth pangs. By the way, January 1st, if you're not aware of this, Iran began processing 20% enriched uranium. That's called HEU, or highly enriched uranium. They are back on track. It is uranium that is nuclear weapon ready. And they are on the fast track. And by the way, it's in clear violation of the 2015 Tehran nuclear pact, which President Trump pulled out of, which was a stupid agreement, which was foolish anyway, but even if it was still in play right now, they're in violation. They're not keeping it. Last I read, President Biden wants to go right back into that pact, like it's going to do any good. Iran is getting ready for war. The Bible teaches that in the run-up to the rapture, it's going to be painful and it's going to be difficult. Have you had a hard time in the last 10 months? Guess what? Run-up to the rapture. Welcome, fellow Americans, to the hard times that the Bible said would be in play right as we are called out of this place. You might say, well, that's not very comforting, Pastor. Comfort is next week. This week, we're talking perspective and, and especially perseverance. And remember this. The Lord says in Isaiah 66, verse 9, Shall I bring to the point of birth and not give delivery? Or shall I who gives delivery shut the womb, says your God? 
In other words, yeah, the labor pains, the birth pains are going to happen, but I will deliver. Now, that's a promise for Israel and, and perhaps a, a part of a prophecy update we're going to get to in, in a couple of weeks, if, you know, Lord willing. But this reveals the heart of God to see his promises all the way through. He will not stop short. We're not going to come right up to the rapture and God go, eh. <laughs> no, he's proved that he would see it through. In fact, he proved he would see it through when he saw it through himself personally in the personal pain and suffering of Jesus. Listen to John 16, 32. Behold, an hour is coming and has come for you to be scattered, each to his own home, he tells the apostles, and to leave me alone. And yet I am not alone because the Father is with me. These things I've spoken to you so that in me you may have peace. In the world you have tribulation, but take courage, I have overcome the world. Look at Matthew 24, verse 9. He says, then they will deliver you to tribulation. So all this stuff is a run-up, verses 4 through 8, the birth pangs. And then, speaking to his Jewish apostles, speaking, I believe, to Israel in particular, then they will deliver you to tribulation and will kill you, and you will be hated by all nations because of my name. Hey, the Jewish people are already hated by all nations. At that time, many will fall away and will betray one another and hate one another. Many false prophets will arise and will mislead many. Because lawlessness is increased, most people's love will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end, he will be saved. Now listen, I've never thought about this before. But I realized in studying this, we go verses 4 through 8, the birth pangs, the run-up to the rapture. But guess what? The tribulation doesn't just begin in verse 9. Oh, it does. Verse 9 describes, I believe, the beginning of the tribulation and what it will be like for those left behind and especially for Israel. But verses 9, 10, 11, 12, 13 also speaks to the church in the run-up to the rapture. That is, Jesus is just vague enough there to allow the overlap. You see, in this world you will have tribulation. It's not the tribulation. The tribulation it's that seven-year period of time Daniel prophesied about, and it's unlocked in the book of Revelation, the tribulation that begins with a covenant sign between Antichrist and Israel and will run seven years. And we can document that, and we did in our Revelation series. That's the tribulation. You're going to have tribulations, birth pangs, and they look an awful lot like this, that some will be killed. You will be hated by all nations because of my name. And many people, while Jesus is prophetically warning Israel, he's also prophetically warning Christians, you're going to be hated for being a Christian. And by the way, that's something else going on right now. Sign of the times, number seven, gaslighting Christians. Gaslighting Christians. What do you mean? This week, CNN's Chris Cuomo on Monday called Marco Rubio, Mr. Bible Boy, Mr. Bible Boy, saying he has a Bible quote for every moment, as if that's a bad thing. I mean, he was saying this as a slight. And then he doubled down on Twitter on Wednesday morning saying, people who put Christian first in their bio tend to be the nastiest people I encounter here. Have you heard that? Boy, I'll tell you what. Christians are nasty people. Christians are bigoted. Christians are intolerant. 
Those Christians, almost to the point sometimes if you've heard it enough as a Christian, you think, I'm going to keep quiet. And that's exactly what the devil wants you to do. That's exactly the point. It's gaslighting. Do you know what gaslighting means? I got to define this for you. It is a form of psychological manipulation in which a person or group covertly sows seeds of doubt in a targeted individual or group, making them question their own memory, perception, or judgment. Gaslighting Christians. Christians are intolerant. And so a Christian is afraid to say what the Bible says. Christians are nasty. And so a Christian quiets down because we're afraid of offending. Brothers and sisters in the run-up to the rapture do not be manipulated into shutting down. You have the gospel of the truth. You have what the world needs, what people are desperate for. People are shaken right now more than ever before. They need the word of God. They need to hear the truth. They need to see the joy and the perseverance in the Christian community more than ever before. They don't need make America great again. They need to see Jesus Christ. Now, some of you as MAGA fans are going, hey, come on, Rick, that's not fair. You know what? I am, I feel liberated. I was talking, okay, I won't name you, Mike, because I don't want, you know, that association. (laughs) Mike and I were talking about this on Thursday night. I feel liberated because now it's no longer about saving America. Now we can get back to saving people for eternity. Now we can get back to the focus. Let the darkness be the darkness. Let's be the light. Let's get back to preaching the truth, not preaching a political perspective, right or wrong. That's not my point. The point is we have a message, and it's not make America great again. It's make the name of God great in this world. It's make Jesus Great before people. Let people see who he is. Make the gospel our focus. Let that be our intent now and and until we're out of here. Keep bringing the gospel. Hold up the lantern, the light. Let our love for each other and for lost people grow brighter. Speak the truth because the truth is the only thing that will save in the name of Jesus Because, and here's the last sign of the time for this morning, and we'll come back to more next week. Sign of the times number eight, because amazing grace. Amazing grace. Back to Titus chapter two, verse 11. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men. Please hear me. This is, I think, the biggest sign of the times, the most important one, amazing grace. Which is to say, with all the plagues, the pandemic, the riots. I wanted to say something about the riots. Maybe I just shouldn't. No, no, no. Gaslighting Christians. I'm going to say what I want to say. (laughs) There have been riots going on for two years. Cities burning. What happened on Wednesday is no different, except that it was a small group of people, I believe, who (laughs) got out of control. I'm not excusing it. I'm not approving of it. The vast majority of people there that were, you know, protesting were protesting. But it's really funny to me that when it's on the right, it's a riot. When it's on the left, it's a, it's a protest. You know, that, that, that's just, we've been watching riots for a year and a half. That's the point. We've been seeing cities burn. We've been seeing people unjustly and lawlessly going about things for, for a long time now. And so what took place at the Capitol on Wednesday is like, well... So this is the worst thing that's happened? Have you you been in Portland? 
Have you seen what's going on in the cities of our, of our country? Come on. For all this stuff happening, we're still in the age of grace. Do you realize that? You know what has not left the building? Grace has not left the building. Grace is still in the world. You know why God didn't come Wednesday morning or Wednesday evening or Tuesday night? Grace. Amazing grace. Salvation remains at the table for all people. And my friends, it is not over yet. We are in the run-up to the rapture. The rapture has not happened. Grace has not ceased to be extended. It's here this morning for anyone who would take it by simply putting faith and trust in Jesus Christ. Amazing grace. And so our message is not to put faith in the world or its systems or its movements. Our faith is in Jesus and in his grace that he is bringing. And again, I'll say it one last time, making America great again, as inspiring as that may have sounded, and I was inspired by that theme. That's not our hope. That's not our salvation. It never was. Jesus. Grace. Faith in Christ, not in self, not in money, not in the pursuit of happiness, not in audio amusement, certainly not in the deceitful doctrines of demons. And don't fear even the birth pangs. Jesus described them. He didn't describe them so we'd be afraid. He described them so we'd persevere knowing a birth is coming. Again, back to that picture of a woman in childbirth. The labor pains are awful, but the closer they get, the sooner the little baby. And it is remarkable, the moment the baby is born, the peace on the mother's face. <laughs> and when she holds that little baby for the first time, it was all worth it. The birth pains are worth it, folks. We're going to get through this. Don't fear them. And don't be intimidated by those who are trying to gaslight Christianity. You hold the word of the truth. We walk in amazing grace. Put your faith in the grace that has appeared, bringing salvation to all men. Okay, so what does that look like as a believer? Quickly, verse 12, instructing us, a grace, salvation, is now instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present Age. See, that's the effect of grace. When you get grace, sensible, righteous, godly holiness begins to take place. Because grace will change you. If grace doesn't change you, you don't get grace. If grace doesn't draw you to the Lord in holiness, you've missed something there. Grace isn't to give us license to do whatever we want. Grace is freely given our salvation, our eternity with God, and fills us with such hope, such joy, such peace, that all we want to do is be like him. Sensible, righteous, godly, holy. That is how we must live. Now, more than ever before, stop playing it like the world. And let's look to the holiness of God. And verse 13, looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus. Some of you know this, but consistent with biblical prophecy, Paul describes two phases of the second coming of Jesus very clearly. The blessed hope speaks of the rapture of the church where we go up. The glorious appearing speaks of the return of the king when he comes down and we will with him. 
More on that next week. The pace is quickening. The pangs are intensifying and increasing. And Jesus is about to call us home very soon. It's the run-up to the rapture. So, brothers and sisters, let us run with endurance. The race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God, and that is a picture of exactly what's going to happen to you. We see the joy set before us. Oh, we despise the shame, but we will sit down around the throne of God and we will be with him forever. And Jesus promised, Revelation 3.10, because you have kept the word of my perseverance, I also will keep you from the hour of testing that hour which is about to come upon the whole world to test those who dwell on the earth. And Lord willing, we will come back to that next week. Let's pray together. Father, so many things taking place around us, so much that is disconcerting and unnerving and upsetting. And then you remind us, hey, I said difficult times will come. You defined it for us prophetically. You saw these things coming, Lord, and you have told us about them. Even, even the plague of coronavirus, you told us ahead of time things like this would be taking place. And so I pray, Father, first for peace among your people that we would not be disturbed or shaken as if the tribulation had already begun. But Lord, we would trust in you and we would recognize, yes, these are difficult times. Yes, these are painful times. Yes, these are hard times, but we are right there. Lord Jesus, I can't wait to hear your voice. I can't wait to hear you call, come up here. But until you do, by your wisdom, and on your calendar, Father, would you make us sensible and righteous and godly. Lord, may we hold up the lantern like we never have before until you come. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.